inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone and stream all of our live local shows. We thank you for making us part of your day today. And without further ado, I want to bring back a friend of the program and a guy who's been a constant source of inspiration and support for me along my journey. Michael Shreve, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Good to be back, Jake. How are you doing? Good to hear you, brother. That We were just listening to a, a live version uh, from Fremont, California of They Love Me 15 Feet Away. Uh, and that's off uh, this. That's off your Spellbinder album. Um, it's off the first record, yeah. Not this, the, that one was out a few years ago, and then we have a new one out now. Um, and so, and that if it's Fremont, that's a neighborhood in Seattle, excuse me, where we were playing for, for many years um, on a weekly residency. Can you talk about, even on this newer album, how much difference there is between the studio tracks that, of, that, of this band and then how it changes in a live setting? Well, um, <clears throat> for one thing, it... it it took a hell of a lot longer, but um, we recorded it in the house of the studio of our organ player, Joe Doria, <clears throat> excuse me, who wrote a bunch of the music on, on the record as well. So naturally, you're able to, um, you know, take the time to, to get things, um, you know, just how you'd like them, and, and, and you know, it seems when there is that possibility, it's, it's taken. Um, so it took a while to get the record done. And then the final stage of it, and the reason it sounds um, as good as it does, this new Spellbinder record, is because my buddy Pat Thrall from Automatic Man mixed the record, and, um, and he did such an exquisite job on it. Uh, and I'm really very proud of the way the record sounds, as well as the way everybody played on it. Can you talk about specifically what Thrall did that make, I mean, so much of, so many things I listen to now, recorded now, that aren't, didn't go through the analog process. They, they not a lot of dynamics. They sound kind of sterile. Can you talk about what Thrall did that made it brighter, uh, or just in general, what you, what, why you enjoyed the recording, the sound so much? Well, I think it's because of the time that he took. Um, you know, the, it, it was like a labor of love for him. So I, I know he went through every note on that record and and just um, brought the best out of it uh, sonically. And um, so I just think it it, it was the you know the, the attention to detail that he he gave it and the time that he spent on it that you know, brought everything out in a way that, um, you know, if that time was not taken, it, it wouldn't sound like it does. And so I'm really grateful for that. And, and I'm grateful to him for the time that he took on it and really super pleased with the way it sounds. I think it holds up to any record, whether it's a, a, a top 10 pop record or any kind of record sonically, even though it's instrumental music, it sounds fat, the space, this the stereo, the placement, the depth of it is all because of his mix. And that's why it sounds so much different than our first album, which was recorded live in, um, at that club in Seattle. Do you, have, you, uh, have, have you been able to tour uh, for the album yet? Or is there plans to do like a Pacific Northwest? What do you got in, in so far? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm... I'm I'd love to tour. I'd love to tour with it. So we've got to at least put something together um, um, for the West Coast at, at a minimum where we can at least drive. And otherwise, I'm I'm doing a big push on it press-wise, and there should be a lot of stuff. We've got, we're have got we getting some really great reviews on it, and I'm hoping to get a booking agent and be able to get out there. There's nothing more I'd like to do than get to stand out there and tour with it. Can you talk about the, uh, like, the, like I, my original question was the, you know, juxtaposing the studio 
tracks versus what could be potentially seen live? I mean, will the stuff open up from a seven minute to a 12 minute ja track? Does stuff like that happen in, in, in Spellbinder? Well, sure it does. Um, yeah. But one of the things about Spellbinder, even though it's an instrumental group, is that I don't, I'm not a big fan of the usual, you know, everybody in the band take a solo on every song. Right. So I like it to be tight, uh, instrumental, arranged. And then there is there are solos, of course, and there is freedom that we take uh, outside of the album. But um, having said that, I'm just not a big fan of every song, everybody solos. I really do want to keep it as entertaining as possible. Um, and I don't want it to be something that seems just, uh, what's the word, you know, that uh, a lot of people feel when they listen to um, an instrumental group. Um, I don't want it to sound self-indulgent. I want it to sound, I want it to be real fresh sounding and I want it to be live music, real players right in front of your eyes. And I want there to be a high level of musicianship, but I don't necessarily want solos on every tune. But I guarantee you, you come to see the band, you're going to walk away really liking it. And I, I do yeah. inst instrumental music. I, I still look for the same things. I look for the feel. I look for melody. I'm still a big fan of melody. Um, we, do, we do a tune. Um, one of my favorite um, musicians is the Brazilian percussionist and composer, Carlinhos Brown. And um, we do uh, a couple of tunes of his that are vocal tunes, and we do them instrumentally. Um, and we put one on the record called Pop Reladro, which is um, really beautiful. Well, it's, a, it, it's just kind of a kick-ass, you know, tune. and sounds like a horn section because there's a trumpet in the band. Um, and we use some effects on the trumpet as well. And um, it's, uh, it's, so that opens up the record. And there are no solos on that, on that particular tune. And there's other songs. Um, that I covered that are just really very melodic as well. One of them is a song by, um, um, well, it's, I first heard it by a singer um, by the name of, uh, what's her name? Um, here, let me see. I got the album here. Sure. Let me open uh, it up once. Yeah. Um, hold on one sec. Talking to Michael Shreve here on Power Talk 1210, his new album with uh, Joe Dorio, uh, Spellbinder. Um, uh, and he's. Uh, Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's, go ahead. You, uh, yeah, who, is, it a, is it a pop tune or, or who, who, who sang it? No, 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 it's not a pop tune. It's, um, it's, a, it's a song by a singer. Um, uh, it's called Tirioni, or Trillioni, it's called. And it's a song that is sung by uh, Dolce Pontes, who's a, a Portuguese or Spanish fado, F-A-D-O, singer. It's a certain style of singing. And I heard it while driving in the car with my wife, and I just fell in love with the melody and said, now, this is the kind of melody I, I want to play with the band. And so we worked up an arrangement of that. It's, it's, it sounds like a very traditional tune, but it's really very beautiful. Another song is um, one called 1902 that was um, written by John Leventhal, the guitar player John Leventhal. And I first heard this at least 20 years ago on a compilation record for, of Six Degree, six degree uh, Records. And um, uh, the, the head of that label is a man named Bob Duskus, and he's got the most impeccable taste in music. And this was a compilation and this was done by a group called the Mel's and it's just, I don't know anybody that's ever heard it. I mean, even when I told John and Roseanne Cash, who is John's uh, wife that I'm, I was covering 1902. They both looked at each other like, what? You heard that song? Nobody's heard that. <laughs> the, 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 music, sounded, the musicologist you are, you know, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. They were really surprised. Um, and, the way that I did, the way that they did it, um, 
is very different than the way it ends up sounding on my record. Uh, it, it, they have it with a clarinet as well, playing a melody. It sounds very, very, uh, oh, geez. Um, it sounds very European and, and Jewish. In fact, the whole record is uh, is uh, of Jewish heritage music, but with contemporary artists. And so the way I did it is it sounds more like Santana than it does like a Jewish thing. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, so many of the others are are done. There's a tune that is called "Renewal" that was done by the piano player Monty Alexander and Joe Doria, our keyboard player, arranged that. Um, and then all the other tunes are by Joe. But um, but I think it's a it, it's a really it represents the sound of the band, and it's markedly different than the first live album. So if um, if you don't have it, I'll, I'll send you a link to it or send you a copy of the CD. Talking to Michael Shreve here on the Jake Feinberg Show. And uh, since we last talked, Michael, I've been commissioned to produce a film documentary on Stan Getz. And, uh, wow, really? Yeah, man. It's a major break. And I thank you and every all the cats for supporting me because uh, the producer found me through Facebook. And uh, I wanted to know... If you ever cross paths, well, first of all, were you, I mean, you guys, we talked before about uh, Joe Beam. So I have to believe that Carlos and you guys must have must have been loving the, some of the Stan Getz stuff. I don't think it was too sleepy for you, the girl from Ipanema, but did you cross paths with Stan? And, and could you give me, a, could you talk a little bit about how you guys viewed him and you specifically how you viewed Stan Getz uh, as an o- old school improviser where if he didn't hear it, he wasn't going to play. Uh, I I never I never met the man, so um, I mean, I, but I, I was always a big fan, um, a, a very big fan. I, I mean, a huge fan, yeah. as a matter of fact, because uh, the sound of that he got out of his horn was just amazing. Even I mean, all kinds of records from going way back to like um, later stuff where Jeff McCarroll played drums on it as well. That, some of that stuff, I forget the name of the record, but that was really great. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, he had a beautiful feel for the Brazilian stuff, of course, and uh, his tone lent itself to it. But I never met the man. Can you talk more specifically about the idea of uh, the old school impro- improviser? Uh, somebody that might come to mind in the sense like, uh, you know, where, you know, Stan was on the road with Tea Garden in ninth grade. He had no formal education. Uh, he could he could read, but at the same time, he had big ears. And basically on the bandstand, if he didn't hear something, he was not just going to play for the sake of playing. He would allow the rhythm section to coalesce and often develop maybe their own idea. And then he'd come back in. And can you talk about the cons- that concept of old school improvisation and, in fact, how you might even talk to some of the cats that you that are in your band now about, um, or just in general, uh, don't play for the sake of playing. Listen, hear, and play what you hear. Well, um, I just read something. Um, oh, it was it was from one of your interviews. Um, <laughs> Where Pat, Patrick Gleason yes. had had said yes. <laughs> that he was getting together on a daily basis with Gil Evans in New York after Gil and Miles came to see him came to see Herbie Hancock's band at the Village Vanguard, and they were and they would listen to the tapes of the live recordings, I guess, from the night before. I'm assuming Patrick was talking, saying that he was at Gil's place, and and Gil noticed that he looked down. While listening, he, I mean, he, that Patrick looked like he was getting depressed, and he said, "What's going on?" He said, "I just can't stand what I'm playing," and um, and Gil said, "Yeah, that happens to me too. When I do that, I take my hands off the keys and put them in my lap, and just listen, and then eventually, the next thing I know, I'm playing." <laughs> so what, what why, did, why did that resonate tell me why that resonated with michael shreve well it's it what it resonates with is the question you just asked and what it means is you know if you don't have anything to say don't say it 
just don't play. <laughs> don't play. Right. You know, just 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 shut up and um, and and you know let the whole thing be going on. That's exactly what Gil was saying. It's, I just I just listened to everybody else instead of thinking I have to step in there and do something. Now, of course, when it's time for you to play, you're expected to play. And, um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think that I think that anybody is, has to be a couple of things prepared um, in the mode of the music and the, you know, changes of the song if you're an improviser. Um, but it's not all about the notes. It's not about the, the amount of notes that you can play. It really means, can you, you know, this is your opportunity to say something. What can you bring to the song? What can you bring to the listener? And um, to bring them into the music. And so it takes a certain sensitivity aside from the knowledge that you have. And the big ears are, are a large part of that as well, to be reacting to what's going on around you. And Stan Getz, I mean, you know, if he if he wasn't so schooled, then I didn't I didn't know that. But he certainly had to have big ears. I know a musician, for instance, like uh, the great drummer Dennis Chambers. He doesn't read, and he plays in complicated groups like with John McLaughlin and and Mike Stern. And um, so, what that means is he's got huge ears. But what it also means is he's probably got a really incredible memory as well. That's right. To to learn the songs, so I found that great musicians also have a great memory. It's um, it's 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 something that you know is just necessary, and I think some people have better memory than others, and I think it has to do with the level of their musicianship in the end. I don't have a great memory. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I can point that out. I, I think that um, it's, a, it's a quality that, uh, that goes overlooked because if you don't have it so much, then you appreciate that, oh, well, some people really do have this, and it, and it, it makes it easier, you know, because they can catch things and it sticks with them um, in learning music and and memorizing music and, and things like that. Can you talk about uh, where you feel you most learned uh, dynamics in the sense of we talked about Gil putting his just putting his hands in his just hands in his lap and listening and then coming back in when it felt right. Uh, can you talk about in your career a, a moment where uh, you sort of learn knowing that you didn't have a great memory but you were learning about you know just stop playing so hard slow down slow down don't play hard listen and even play softly and then bring it back up was there a time when you really learned how to play with dynamics because I guess you know I was talking to Reggie Workman a few months ago and he was like you know I go see cats now, and they are so they're they're proficient beyond belief. They got monster chops, and he goes, "But you know what? I don't see them ever incorporate the cymbals at all for an entire mm. set of music. Never the cymbals, and those are colors, as far as I'm concerned." Joe Sample said the same thing. I'm I'm just sort of letting you riff on this. You, you go with dynamics, symbols, symbol, symbolism, riffing. How did you learn to develop dynamics and? What would be your advice for people to remember that cymbals are part of the drum kit? I learned it when I played in the big band at College of San Mateo in San Mateo, California, when I was given the opportunity to be in that band when I was going to school by the leader, um, and his name was Dick Crest. And I owe him a lot for one, giving me the chance, and two, for explaining to all the subtleties. Um, he, along with the bass player in that band by the name of Tom Rutley, um, took a lot of time to to um, coach me and, and literally coach me about the shadings and what it takes. Even with a big band, it, it demands extreme dynamics from the drummer 
and the whole band. But the drummer is really driving a big band. It's it's really something that I recommend for drummers if they if they can um, ever play with a big band or get you know the co- sort of recordings you can play along with and read the chart with a big band. It's an unbelievable experience and teaches you dynamics. And then and then you know you got to do the fill that kicks in the horns and so. It's all a really beautiful experience, I and mean, it's like it's like I don't know what it's like driving a tank, you know. <laughs> um, but you know, then that tank can then feel like it's floating on water if it's done right, and uh, and so the masters of that stuff, you know, like listen to you know Count Basie stuff, and um, and Buddy Rich is the master of that too, um, and. Sunny Payne, mm, mm. Um, so you mm. know those kind of those kind of players, and the big band stuff is really amazing. Or go, go to those go to those roulette records of uh, Count Basie, like uh, the Atomic Bomb record and other ones. And um, I can't believe you just name drop. It's so funny. I just this morning I just found this record, Teresa Brewer with Count Basie and Sonny Payne. I can't wait. I mean, he, Sonny was was Basie's drummer in that big band. I mean that that to me was like that's right. That's I mean right. that. Can so you, I, yeah. I'm assuming Bob Seal produced that record. Is that correct? 100 percent correct. Bob, that was on Flying Dutchman or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that was his label, and yeah. Teresa Brewer was his wife. Wow, so, I um, didn't know that. Is he Thiel's long? Yeah. He's not. Thiel was the one that said LPs represent newspapers of that time. Such a classic uh, line, but um, so he did all the Coltrane records too. You know, I mean, he did uh, produce all those Coltrane records, and he co-wrote um, he co-wrote uh, the song that uh, Louis Armstrong. It's a Wonderful World. He was he was intro- him and Bob Shad uh, were essential uh, per- among many. But uh, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you. You talk about the tank floating on water. Uh, I love that analogy. When after um, your teachers at San Mateo, did we lose him? You still there, Michael? I'm here. Okay. Yeah. So here. The, the after, so you you got taught within the classroom. Can you talk about where that band would play, where you could actually uh, ex- re- realize? the real impact of the drum of the and the power of the drum even not being played power in a powerful fashion i mean when you took it into a live setting can you talk about a place where, where that it dawned on you that it really felt good because there's one it's one thing to re- to be in the rehearsal and then there's another thing to play live yeah well yeah during that period um i mean uh, Speaking of those dynamics, I mean, one of the things I don't know if floating uh, floating on a water is the best one, but maybe like maybe like a steamship going across the water or something, because it's not standing still. Even even the drummer in a big band just playing the cymbal with a walking bass and 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 the bass drum uh, doing four on the floor really lightly feathering. I mean, just that feeling alone is unbelievable and i was able to take those things and and at the same time as i was learning the big band stuff it was it's also when i discovered all the 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 small group stuff that was going on like like the stuff with elvin and jack d Jeanette and um roy haynes and art blakey and and there was a, a lot of exciting groups going on at that period. That was this is like late '60s. I mean, mid '66, let's say. So there was a lot of exciting things. So then at night, I would then go and play. Um, it seemed like almost every night I was playing in, in Palo Alto at a place called the Poppycock, and um, there was a group of guys. One of them was a. a the organ player was Paris Bertolucci, who's, who still plays in the Bay Area. Wow. And, this is great. I didn't even... Ken, wow. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, Paris, great player. Ken Baker was on sax, and the guitar player was a guy named Kevin Hogan. And, um, and Paris was playing bass, I believe. And then this was the time I was just so young, and those guys helped me just even learn how to 
feel eight bars, 16 bars, or 12 bars in the blues, and, and just without counting, eventually just learning what that felt like and playing in that small group situation. So um, that stuff was all was a really valuable experience, and then the next day I'd go to big band, you know, every day. So those two different you know, the small group and the big band, that was really great. And then I was also doing R&B stuff as well. So it, it became well-rounded in, in in a certain way, at least between big band, small group, or organ group, with horn, and playing standards, and, um, and then playing in East Palo Alto at a place called the Nairobi Lounge, where we had a band that backed up, like, singers coming through like Etta James and B.B. King and stuff like that and um, so all those experiences really as different as they were you know boy I, I, I didn't like one more than the other each one of them I, re I really loved so my routine those days was get up at 8 in the morning when my parents went to work and um, practice from 8 until uh, 2.33 when I'd go to big band and then after that, come home and then go play at night. So it was um, full time. I I was going to school there, and then I left it. I left everything except for the big band and um, and just practiced all day. Um, so did you? You were on this uh, this black chitlin circuit of Northern California, like that? You no, were... I wasn't. I, no, I, I wasn't. I just it was this one club in East Palo Alto. It was, like, it was like James Brown and the Flames during that period, though, like when, like before he was. The, the, well, they didn't. I, they never played there. Um, it was it was a small place. I mean, I know I backed up um, in another place somewhere. I backed up Sugar Pie De Santos at one point, and <laughs> you remember her? Yeah, I mean, I I just love the names. I mean, no, the idea that how yeah, old right. so, how old were you when you were b backing up at a James? Oh. Uh, Maybe seventeen. So you were you were, just, um, you were still in high school. I mean, you weren't even eighteen. No, uh, I was in junior college. You were in junior college. That's okay. So con okay, yeah, continue. Yeah. I didn't mean to break yeah. the Nairobi Lounge. It's, go ahead, continue to riff on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, but it did get a little funny sometimes. We got a little schizophrenic because <laughs> yeah, right. I I did back up the singer of Sugar Pie De Santos, and she called off a tune. One, two, three, four. You know, or like one, two. Two. And she's an R&B singer. And so what do I do? I start playing a swing beat <laughs> on the cymbal. And I, I'm like, this is where the stuff got confusing because I was doing big band and I was doing... And, oh man, it was so embarrassing. I mean, she literally stopped the band, turned around, looked at me, and, um, and went, mm-hmm. And she kicked me off the stage. <laughs> oh man the humbling yeah the humbling, right. humbling. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, humbling humbling uh, like you man. know it's not a jazz tune white boy you know <laughs> <laughs> oh man having a ball here with Michael Shreve on the Jake Feinberg show uh, you know did you get a chance to see uh, like if you went to the jazz workshop, um, you know, the mm. idea of, uh, this, I'm going back to the early sixties now. So, I mean, maybe it was with you and your pops or even, uh, it was like Dizzy and Roland Kirk before it was Rassan or Wes Montgomery with the Coltrane quartet. The idea of having a guitar with cats that were playing modern jazz i mean there's this whole thing now i mean i just got on the phone with this bass player who basically said beethoven didn't play classical music meaning it wasn't a, it was it's that's just a label okay so you know what i'm trying to get at is this you know coming out of bebop in that early 60s period that modern jazz incorporating psychedelic psychedelia with jazz and because what i've been talking to some cats lately who've seen that stuff and they said the audience, it it was they were the audience was dancing. This was not like play it cool, you know. This is a jazz club. Let's just tap your foot. This was like people pandemonium. Did, did you like have? What, yeah. 
What kind of gigs are you talking about? Like what kind of performers? Uh, like we're talking like uh, Dizzy, Dizzy with Roland Kirk, or oh. Wes Montgomery sitting in with Coltrane, and just just the idea of that uh, that early '60s period of jazz where it was not bebop; it was way beyond. It was, the psychedelic had come into it. And uh, I was just wondering what the closest thing you could remember, because basically people were dancing to it. That, that's why I bring it up. They were dancing. Well, I, I, for me, I guess, um, yeah, I don't know about the psychedelia um, with the things that you're mentioning, but I think maybe the closest thing that, that c- comes under that sort of category to me would be Charles Lloyd live at Monterey. Um, and that record, um, you know, that, and that was with Jackie Jeanette and Keith Jarrett. Um, Cecil McBee or Ron McClure or something like that? Yes, yeah, and, uh, one of them, let's see. Um, but there was a period, um, there was a period during then, uh, in that time when some of the San Francisco groups, um, you know, they... Let me think. I, I think of some of that stuff like um, like Mike Knott and Knock. Uh, the and, Fourth um, Way. The Fourth Way with Eddie Marshall. The fourth yeah, way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and then John Handy's group. Sure. Um, that stuff around that period. Um, that that to me was all happening around the same time. Like the Fillmore stuff was happening, and like the Charles Lloyd record came out in '67. You know, it it was recorded in '66, so around this period '66, '67, and then um, John Handy's group came out, and that was smoking, and had that guitar player Jerry Hahn, sure, um, and um, and Fourth Way, Eddie Marshall, and yeah, Mike Knock, and those guys were doing. You know, they were starting to blend stuff pretty much. You know, and it was a Bay Area. A Bay Area thing as well. That that is, and then yeah, then you had groups like like mm, like the Blues Project in New York, and um, and what's that flute player? Um, hmm. uh, uh, <laughs> I'm just you know I mean I mean I'm getting I'm going more to like the bebop like like in the early '60s were, were you still like outside Basin Street West? You couldn't get in. You could like the, oh yeah. I could I couldn't get in. No, not even I mean, to the. I would I would I would go stand outside like the both end club, um, Basin Street West. I mean I could probably get in. I think maybe I went there, but I don't recall what because they served food. But I know Jazz Workshop. I already told you the story. I think of when I was invited up there by Elvin and and um, and the guys in Coltrane's band, and I went up with my father, um, and I couldn't get in. Well, you told me you went. You crawled through the the ceiling at Stanford that day. That's right. And then they yeah, invited you to right. the show, but you had to stay outside like a dog looking that's through the right. window. Yeah, um, that's right. like a dog, <laughs> <laughs> like a dog through the window. Now you know. Um, it's funny you bring that up because, um, you know, uh, I I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience as objectively as you could. I mean, I I I, I saw some of the performances. Um, can you just give an honest assessment of of this, uh, this 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 new Santana project that came out this year and um, the tour that you went on and ultimately, if you're at peace or, or just in general, did you feel at peace on the drum kit um, with all these you know cats that you've been in the in the trenches with you know years ago? I mean, what, can you just take us through that experience because? Um, as you know, I'm always searching for authenticity, and um, and I, I mean, I you know, I it, I just want I want you to I want you to go on that for a minute. Well, um, when we first got together a few years ago to you know check it out and see how it would feel, um, it was ma- it was magic, and um, boy, I mean we. we we recorded a couple of days of us, and that was even before there was bass or timbales. It was just Carlos and Carabello and Greg and myself, and that was really great. And then when we got um, Carl Peraza and Benny Wheatfield in on bass from Carlos's band, it was also great. Um, 
and the recording I think is uh, I'm proud of the recording uh, I had uh, had surgery with a trigger finger mm-hmm. on my thumb mm-hmm. like like really close to that recording that it was I, I was experiencing this trigger finger which if people don't know is when your finger bends and you can't bend it back into place it gets stuck and I, I was experiencing that with my thumb and I was like oh man what am I gonna do I got this record should I should I, you know, chance doing the record or should I chance going into surgery? I did the surgery and I wasn't completely up to speed during the record. But the record is something I'm really proud of. It sounds it, it sounds good. It sounds really good. Um, and and then we did some gigs, um, one of which is coming out on DVD in October uh, live at... Uh, the House of Blues in, in Las Vegas. So we have a show coming out in record, both vinyl and CD. And then we did three dates on the on the East Coast, Madison Square Garden and two other dates. My only disappointment is that there wasn't more. You know, it it, it felt like a big buildup for, for for nothing. Yeah. We didn't tour it. And, um, and so... The gigs, everybody really enjoyed doing them. The band sounded great. The people loved it. Uh, but then we just didn't do more. So that that was a disappointment, in all honesty. Can and I? Can so, I? I, uh, I, I want to just stay with it. I mean, speaking only for yourself. I mean, it might be self-evident to you, but why was it a disappointment? Because to me, it's like I, I just know that your generation, you guys, just you'd make a record and then you'd play. 160 live gigs that that was what was going on and now and so now it's three gigs so can you talk about talk about the disappointment i don't know i can't i can't all i can tell you is that i was disappointed i mean i i can't really you know this it's not really a big discussion it's just that uh, carlos um decided to not tour with the band but tour with his own band and um you know as you know his wife uh Cindy Blackman is the drummer in his band. Who, she's a great drummer. Um, and so it, it really, the whole thing is up to him. I mean, the, it's more or less the ball is in his court. So and, and on one hand, I can understand it because, you know, it, he's got his own, his own scene going on, his own crew, his own office, his own band, and, and um, you know, it's much easier um, to do it and much less of a hassle than to put up with everybody else who's got an opinion about something um, <laughs> from the original band. That's what I wanted to and, tell you. No, that, that, you may, you, it's very obvious. What, what I, I dig what you're saying. Can you talk about some of the, like when you talk about magic, in the sense not only was the music magical, but did everybody's personalities just immediately fall back into place as well? Where everybody had something, everyone had their own opinion? Uh, or they were, it was, you know, it became, you might get bogged down, but then eventually start playing and then the magic would occur. Can you talk about, I don't know that there's, there's, there's something extremely spiritual about, um, well, I mean, you guys were an iconic part of rock history and then to not recreate it, but come back and do something different and make a record and be back in that again. Um, that's like a time travel and uh with some characters but you think that that's harder because it's he doesn't have full carlos doesn't have full control in that sense well you know i can't speak for carlos i'm 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 looking at it and wondering because there really was no explanation so um right it was just, just you, yeah you left in the dark you know what i mean there wasn't like okay guys here's what's happening you know we're doing three dates and that's going to be it you know it, it was more like we're all wondering, are there going to be more dates? And there was no explanation from, from his camp. So, um, and also the fans assumed that it was going to be this band touring, and it wasn't. So, um, so I was as disappointed as the fans were in many ways. And, um, you know, and so I'm only guessing when I say it's probably much easier for Carlos not to have to deal with all the guys from the original band, you know, even though, you know, there's demand for the, for the, this group, it's kind of historical. We're back together. This band makes kind of a magic together. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, 
And so I think, and I think it, 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 it shows on the record too. It's just a different sound. That's all. I mean, it, it is what it is. So all I can say is it was, it was, you know, wonderful doing it. And I wish we could have done more. Um, do you have any, any plans to, to catch up with, uh, you going to see David Garibaldi anytime soon or have you seen him lately? Uh, no, I haven't, but he's coming up here, I think, in the next couple of weeks, so I, I'm hoping to see him. Well, with Tower of Power? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is this is fascinating stuff. I mean, d- d- tell me a little bit about if you had a dream scenario where you had a budget and you could put together, you know, you mentioned before about keeping people entertained, and not, I love the idea of where you said not everybody gets a solo on every song, and I remember talking to Herb Albert um, uh, and he just thought that part of reinventing music or jazz was just getting out of that structure of, you know, p- horn solo, piano solo, bass solo, back to the head, you know, getting out of that. Uh, if you had a, a budget and, and a, a dream sort of experimental band right now in your head, what would that be? It would be the people that I put together uh, on my record that's going to be coming out later this year. Uh, called Drums of Compassion. Wow. Where uh, I'm playing 16 toms, excuse me, <clears throat> standing up in a semicircle. Jeff Grinke is a, a sound designer, synthesis, who I started the record with. But then I have um, Jack DeJunette and Ola Tunji doing an invocation on the start of the record, Zakir Hussein, uh, Pete Lockett, all these great drummers and percussionists, Ayrto is on there, and um, Trey Gunn, you know, from King Crimson, does a couple of tracks. I have a track with Amon Tobin and I did together. Um, It's almost meditation music. It's it's not meant to. The the record started out many years ago after I came home from listening to music in clubs around 2 a.m. And when I come home and I try to chill out, or calm down, I listen to a different kind of music than I would at three in the afternoon or <laughs> of course. So I listen, I listen to chill music, you know, like choral music or, you know, um, uh, you know, certain kind of electronic music. So I, I said, what kind of record would I like make that I would listen to at this hour? And so, that was the whole impetus of the record was what kind of record could I make as a drummer that I would want to put on at two in the morning. Um, and so that's what this record is. And I would do that and I would do it with full visuals, really make a whole environment more like the, more like the electronic people are doing, like the EDM people are doing, but with a different vibe musically but visuals and even scent and even somewhere between EDM and this and the work that Todd Mockover does from MIT. He does these operas that you walk in and it smells a certain way and it's this and it's that. And um, so I'm, I really would love to move more in a direction where it's a cross between a spiritual experience and tech that we're using tech to create a transformative environment with live music. So, this is fascinating. So it's multi-sensory, also... Multi-sensory, multi-media, um, of course. Yes. Um, you know, I'd I, I have holograms going, you know, and I want to make it just an environment. I mean, maybe it's even an environment where you have to go to rather than it travel. I don't know, you know. I love those, those those kind of magical shows like, you know, Cirque du Soleil or some stuff that's like in Vegas where they have the budget, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, this is this is exactly what needs to happen. I, I you know, I wanted you to just talk. I've been asking a lot of cats about this. Um, when you're in a band and everybody's on the same page, uh, you know, can you talk about the idea when you're in a free form jam and you lose your way and you get lost the idea that if everybody's on the same page any note can be the one can you talk about the idea of, and your your philosophy of any note can be the one 
Well, I didn't say that. No, you didn't. I'm just that. That's that's my line. I'm just saying, it, it, what is your what is your belief about that? In the sense of that, everyone's wants to be focused on where the one is. Where's the one? You know, the, everyone, the bass and the drum. You got to know where the one is. But the idea is that if yeah. if you're if you're just making up if you're making up improvisational music, totally making it up, and you get lost. Or you get you know you find your way back and you're on and you're with like-minded musicians. The idea that any note can be the one. How what do you feel about that? Well, you mean like James Jamerson? <laughs> one, 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 one. Yeah. Well, no, because he. It was what's so great is that when he, I mean the late seventies when the drum track came in and disco came in, and he moved to L.A. because of Motown. And some guys like I can't find the one, man. I can't find. I the know, one. I know. You I know? know, and it's like you that. know, he's like any note can be the one. I just, I'd love to. I just want you guys are the ones to keep this lineage going forward. So just, just riff on that, however you feel. Well, I don't know. I mean, I understand what he's saying. Um, on the other hand. Um, and if, if you go, if you're, you know, in a free form situation, um, and you know, people lose where they are, I think somebody's got to say where the one is. And I think the one is not, cannot be any beat. I mean, I, I have nothing but great, great things to say about James Jamerson. And I read that interview where he said one, one, one. one. <laughs> <laughs> These guys are like, where's the one, man? Where's the one? I know, yeah, I know. Yeah. One, one. I love it. On the other hand, my, I mean, yeah. if I were to be honest, I would say that there has to be a one and there has to be a four or six or whatever the time is because that's what creates the tension. If you're going off, off the beat, Returning to that one, it, 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 because you create the tension when you go out and off, and then, and then when it snaps back to the grid of one is where the delight is, where the the payoff is. Because if somebody goes out, and what's beautiful is that they knew where they were the whole time. Now the listener may not have, and the delight is when they come back to the one. And it creates the tension. It's like Indian music. That's what they do. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's 11 or what, but improvising over that and then coming back to it is what what creates the thrill of the ride. And so I would I, I would say, no, every beat can't be the one because it that's what creates the tension, going away from it and then returning to it. I love this. I, I like the other philosophies. This is what I need. This is going to be transcribed. But, you know, it's about um, it's about creative tension. You know, um, when is Drums of Compassion coming out, Michael? Do you have any idea? Well, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's done. It's mastered. And I need to just get artwork for it and um, get it up and out. So I was hoping to have it out by now. And um, every year I say, you know, I'm going to do something drastic if I don't get this out. Uh, and so now it is, you know, finished and mastered, and I've, I've just got these other loose ends to uh, finish up. I was even hoping to get it in uh, for, uh, to submit it for a Grammy nomination this year, but I think I'm rushing it. And so I'm just, it's been long enough anyway. Um, but I want to get it out this year and get it out. Um, I'm really proud of it. It's a different record. I'm not expecting everybody to love it, but I need to get it out and um, off my off my chest. Um, well, when when, but, when you're ready to go, let's let's hit it because I want to pay respects to Olatunji. This thing has obviously uh, been done over many many years. So let's uh, let's keep in touch and uh, we'll have you on and promote that when it comes out. All right. Sounds good. All right, thank you, my man. It was good to hear you, brother. Be good. All right, you too. Thanks, Jake. Cheers, Michael. Take care. Yep. Bye. Bye. And so, so far, Reed Mathis and Michael Shreve, not a bad day on Power Talk. We'll be right back with Tom Ledden on The Jake Feinberg Show.